Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Good morning. I've, I've already practiced this talk on one set of poor souls, so either this will be better than last time or like I'm, my energy's waning and it'll be worse, so you can decide. Um, a couple of months ago, six months ago, I was at our dinner party around the bench at Brent and Bianca's house, and Sandy, who was just new to our dinner party, asked me, what do you do all day? What do you do all day? What do you do with your time? You're a pastor. What do you actually do? What does that actually mean? And I said, this is my normal response, which I always say sort of defensively and jokingly that I realize now, is I say, oh, I just pray all day and laugh. I just pray all day. And there's something about that interaction that really got to the core of me because I've been on a journey for the last 12 months or so trying to work out what a pastor is. And I've been doing this with my professional supervisor. And every time I get a chance, every time I meet a new pastor, I'm like, what is your job? What do you do? And they never can really answer me because we don't know what we're doing. We're just making things up. Um, but I've, I've come to the realization and to the deep conviction that as a pastor, a core part of my role is actually developing a deep life of prayer, both in my own world and in the life of our church. And more than just a pastoral thing, I'm now coming to really deeply believe that as a follower of Jesus, part of our call is to develop a deep life of prayer. And then even beyond that, I'm beginning to realize that developing a life of prayer is a human thing. You see, as long as humans have existed and that we know, there has been prayer. As long as people popped up around the world, there have been some sort of prayer practices arrived with those people. The earliest records we have of prayer, we can't trace it back to one spot, but 5,000 years ago, we trace it to a couple of different um, nations and communities. Uh, is the first time that we see kind of prayer pop up. Ironically, at the same time that people started writing stuff down about that time. So as long as we can record back, people prayed. There is something instinctively human about praying. There are 4,200 religions in the world today. All of them have some sort of prayer practice. A sixth of the world's population, so one in six people, every day will turn towards Mecca and bow down and pray five times. Muslims. In a couple of weeks, we have Easter. A quarter of the world's population will gather at some point on Easter all around the world and have some sort of prayer. We are a praying people. To, to be human is to pray. In March 2020, when lockdowns happened, Google searches for prayer skyrocketed. One researcher says that for every, every 80,000 new registered COVID cases, the search for prayer doubled. So just like exponentially, every time there's 80,000 new cases, that doubled again. It was just people were searching for prayer. There's something in us as humans that when a crisis hits, we turn to prayer. When we have run out of all the other options, we turn to prayer. There's a saying, there's no atheist on a falling plane. Because when we don't know where else to run, we run to prayer. We reach out to the divine. Matthias Barker, who's a psychologist, he notes this thing, a phenomena that's happened recently, which I think is really interesting, of young girls particularly, but all people, on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is, in, uh, DMing or tagging someone famous like Justin Bieber is actually a form of prayer 
because we're reaching out to someone like transcendent and hoping they'll respond. There's something like prayerful about that, which is really, really interesting. To be human is to pray. Mark chapter 11 is our key verse for the year. I read it, want to read it to you this morning. I spoke on this in more depth and gave some cultural background and all that a couple of weeks ago. You can catch up. That's the first week in our vision series. But let's come back here. Verse 15. When they, that's Jesus and his disciples, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Really powerful story. And I love it because Jesus goes a bit Rambo and like we don't often picture, we picture Jesus gentle, but he's like literally kicking over chairs with people sitting on them, presumably, which is kind of wild. Um, in John's gospel, he makes a whip and he's just whipping people, which I love. Jesus is the best. But I love this concept that we are, in this context, he's talking about the temple, which is the one place where people came to meet God. Since Jesus died and rose again, we are the temple. We're welcomed into the body of Christ. We are the church. So everywhere the people of God gather, we are the temple. It's the same thing, the Father's house. We are called to be a house of prayer, house of prayer for all nations. There's, a, there's an aspect of mission to that. We're meant to bring, uh, create space for everyone to come in. But we are to be a house of of prayer, rather than a den of thieves, rather than take from God, take from one another, we are to create a, a sacred space that's as central to our calling. I share this story in our vision series, but when I read that in our daily write it, daily Bible reading plan, it hit me like a ton of bricks. February last year, because I realized that people would use a lot of phrases to describe greenhouse, this church that we planted, this church that I pastor. But House of Prayer probably wouldn't have made it on that list if we asked 100 people. And I think there is something wrong with that, that we've missed a step. That as the people of God, we are to develop a house of prayer, a house of the presence of God. The greatest man that ever lived was a man of prayer, Jesus when he chose his 12 disciples, he prayed all night, praying for wisdom and discernment and who to pick. When he launched his ministry, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and, and prayed and fasted. This is what Lent is based on. We're in the season of Lent at the moment. When Jesus' cousin John, who he grew up with, was executed, he slipped away to a quiet place to pray. When the pressures of fame and the crowds came crushing Jesus, he would run away and pray. When he fed the 5,000, he did miracles, he would run away after that and pray. When he was facing his own death and coming face to face with giving his life up for all, he knelt down in the Garden of Gethsemane in anguish and prayed. On the cross, with his dying breaths, he prayed. Jesus was a man of prayer. And the church that followed Jesus was born in prayer. 120 believers gathered and Pentecost happened. The Spirit was given. It was the believers gathering together and praying that precipitated that moment that, was, that, that really birthed the church. It was the first church plant. And this church turned into this like 
accidental mega church. There were 3,000 people. People added to it daily. There were 12 leaders, the 12 apostles, and they were trying to work out how to steward this movement. And they realized that they had to um, get away from kind of the day-to-day running of stuff, and they had to devote themselves to prayer and to scripture. There was this impulse back to prayer, even in, you know, the, the busyness of all these people coming in and different people groups and feeding people and doing all the stuff that the church was doing. Peter was praying on the rooftop and he received a vision where God told him that the message of Jesus wasn't just for the Jews but for the Gentiles as well, that the message was to spread out. Paul and Barnabas were, uh, had hands laid upon them. They were sent out to go and plant churches. It was through prayer that they were sent out. It was through prayer that they learned where to go and where not to go. The church has always been a church of prayer all through history. In fact, Pete Greig says that you can find priority of prayer on almost every page of Scripture and in every chapter of church history. Every great move of God, you can pinpoint back to a few people on their knees praying. Prayer is a human thing. It's where we run to when we've got nowhere else to go. It's a Jesus thing, and it's a church thing. Yet, I don't know about you, but I do know about you. We find it hard, because I know I talk to you. I find it hard. Developing a prayer life is actually a hard thing. It's deeply human. We're drawn to it when the plane's falling, yet it's hard to develop a practice of prayer. Um, The Evangelical Alliance did a study of really committed evangelical Christians in the States, and they found that 90% of them read their Bible every day, but only 30% of them prayed every day. Barna did a study where it said that only 2% of the people who did the survey were very happy or very satisfied with their prayer life. There is like this yearning desire in us for prayer, but the practice of it is really hard. I wonder why that is. For me, I think it really comes down to two, two key things. The first one is a really simple one, like we are busy and distracted and our our brains are fried by our iPhones, right? TikTok, you know, every 10 seconds we're moving to the next thing, three seconds. Actually, I heard a study recently that people will stay on an app for 47 seconds now and then go to the next one. 47 seconds, that's like the average, which is crazy. We are distracted human beings. We'll talk more about that in this series as we lead up to Easter. But the other question, the other thing that stops us from praying, I think, is our theological questions, our philosophical questions. And it really comes from logically thinking about God, who, if God is all-powerful, if God's in control, if God's, like, outworking his story, his will, his plan, then what good does my puny little words make in all of that? Is it just some sort of charade that's going on that, like, I, I speak and sometimes it seems like God responds? Are we just talking ourselves into it? It's an interesting question. There's that that debate has been going on for years and years. Hello, Milo. The debate has been going on for years and years through the church around that very concept of God as in control. Sovereign is is the theological word that God's in control and humans free will. This is kind of the argument between Calvinism and Arminianism, if you've heard that. Calvinists believe that like, there's a really high, high view on God's sovereignty, low on free will, that God's just chosen us, elected us to go to heaven, and some people to go to hell. And then Arminians are, are the other way around. They think uh, they have a lower view of God's sovereignty, a higher view of free will. Um, hey, mate, 
And I, I sort of fit in the middle there somewhere with John Wesley, which is good company. But I am not a Calvinist. I do have a high view of free will. So does he. <laughs> Just prove, prove my case, didn't I? Humans have free will. If you've ever met a human, you know that they're not going to do what you tell them to do. They're just going to do what they want to do. That's how we work as humans. And there is some sort of mystery in how that works around God's will, what God wants, what we want, what I want. There's 8 billion of us in the world and we all want different things. What creation wants and the laws of physics and how things work generally and what the enemy wants. And there's some sort of concoction in all of that that, I don't know, there's some sort of mystery of how prayer works. But even below that kind of philosophical, theological question, I think for a lot of us, we can trace our hesitancy to prayer back to some sort of disappointment. Where we prayed and believed, or at least wanted to believe, and God didn't come through. I had a guy... Um, growing up, my youth leader invested tons of time into, into me and my friends, and a lot of my spiritual life can be kind of traced back to him. And just as his baby was born, he was just newly married, um, had a baby boy, he was diagnosed with um, bowel cancer, really aggressive type of cancer. And you should have seen, like, our church mobilized in a way that I'd never seen before, my church growing up, um, the church that we were sent from. And there was prayer meetings for this guy, and people were, you know, praying from, for months and months. And there was, like, prophetic words. We grew up in a Baptist church, and, like, you know, you don't often see prophetic words in a Baptist church. Uh, and people were, like, there's just, like, a sense of, like, belief and faith. And I even had one well-meaning lady come up to me and say, I just felt like God say that if you go and pray um, for Seth and lay your hands on him, he'll, he'll get better. And so I did I went into the hospital room, and his wife was sitting there, and his little boy, I laid my hands on him, and I prayed for him, and I believed that God would heal him, and then he died a couple of months later. And I think we can all relate to that on different levels, that we've believed and prayed, but the person didn't get better, or the marriage didn't work out, or the opportunity didn't come. And I think that goes quite deep deeper than we know, you know, those questions and those doubts. And below that, you know, below the philosophical, theological questions and the real kind of pastoral questions of life, I think you can boil down really a key question that comes in all of our hearts and souls is, what is prayer? What actually is it? What are we doing because sometimes we have this view of prayer that God is like a cosmic vending machine and I go up to God and if I can punch in the right code or if I have enough faith or enough people, then I'll get the answer that I want. And there's certainly an aspect, it's called intercessory prayer, certainly an aspect of prayer. But I wonder if we've narrowed prayer so much that we've missed the mark of what it even is. You see, I think prayer is an umbrella term. Prayer is our life with God. Prayer, Ronald Rollheiser says, prayer is lifting hearts and minds to God. Lifting our, our emotion, our will, our desire, our thoughts, 
our strategies, our attention to God, lifting hearts and minds to God. I like that. David Brenner, I really like this one. He says, prayer is the soul's native language. Prayer is the soul's native language. That one makes sense to me because, you know, like we were talking about before, where we run to in crisis, when everything else is gone, it's like we go back to our soul's native language because we don't know what else to do. But sometimes we lost the ability to speak our native tongue. Philip Yancey wrote What's So Amazing About Grace, a book that I don't know how many people have read, but a lot of people. He said, prayer is the act of seeing reality seeing the way things are from God's point of view. So prayer is like a coming in and a reshaping of our view and our mind. Interesting. Pete Gregg, I like this one. Prayer is a desire for the presence of God, a desire for the nearness of God. My, my working definition, which I might change, but it's, it's a working definition right now, is that prayer is simply the development of the relational space between me and God. Prayer is relationship. And any relationship is boiled down to communication. If, you stop, if I stop communicating to Vince, like I just never talk to him again, we don't have a, we don't have a relationship. Like it's, it's gone. Communication is the conduit of relationship, right? And so Mel and I, we're married, and you look at our communication, if you like, you know, got it all on a spreadsheet, it would be a weird smattering of like big things and small things. Like it'd be like, see you tonight, babe. Love you. Should send me a text and say chocolate, please, when I'm going to the shops. It would be sending random memes, right, and tagging each other in, in Instagram reels. It would be our date night and the conversations that we have. It would be our time when we go on holidays or we go away at the start of the year and we plan our year and we pray. It would be just like sitting in silence a lot, like just, you know, I'm here on my phone and she's there and on her phone. It'd be watching things together. It would be going for walks and debriefing and chatting. It's like a weird smattering of big things and small things. And sometimes I can ask Mel to do something and sometimes she'll say yes and sometimes she'll say no because she's a person, she's got free will. But I think that is actually quite a good metaphor for our life with God. That if, if, if I only ever, if our relationship, mine and Mel's relationship, was only made up of asking, it would be a very good relationship. We would, be, we would get quite bitter towards one another. John Mark Comer says, God is more friend than formula. More relationship than, you know, cosmic vending machine. And I think when we view prayer through that lens, through that wider lens of a life with God, it opens up a whole realm of possibility for us. Prayer, the development of the relationship between me and God. And out of relationships is stuff happens. It's relationships in life that move us and, and, and cause us to move jobs or move houses, or get married, or go hang out with people. Relationships move us. And out of a relationship that we have with people, I change, we, we change, and maybe the most controversial thing that I'll say this morning is that God changes. And you might go, what? Hang on. God's unchanging. God never changes. He's the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. 
God doesn't change. Surely God doesn't change. Well, there's a story here in Exodus. And um, the people have been of Israel have been slaves for 400 years in, in Egypt, the superpower of the day. Through Moses, God comes. There's like the plagues. Some miraculous stuff happens. Somehow, the empire of the world releases all their slaves. They run away. The empire changes their mind, runs after them. They get to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. They go through. Then they're in the wilderness, and there's bread that comes from heaven every day, manna. And then they get given the Ten Commandments. It's like this new covenant between God and people. And, and God's like, you are going to be a people that blesses the world. You're going to be a people that changes the world. You're going to be the priests of all nations. In other words, I'm gonna, you're going to mediate my presence to the rest of the world. And here's how you're going to do it. This is like the, the terms of the covenant. One of those terms is don't make idols. Don't make idols. Don't make statues of anything in the in the, in the sea or the sky or the land. And they've just walked through all of that. A huge just miracle, miracle after miracle after miracle. And Moses is up spending time with God. And the people are like, Moses has been gone forever. Do you know what we should do? I've got a great idea. Let's make an idol. Let's make a, let's make a golden calf. Uh, even though we got rescued from, you know, the empire, 400-year slavery, we went through the Red Sea, you know, bread coming down every day from heaven. We've got this new government that says, don't make idols. We make an idol. Sounds like a great idea. And obviously, the reaction to that, God is angry. And God's like, oh, okay, I'm going to sort this out. You guys suck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe you clean. Fire, gone. We're going to start again with Moses. I promise we'll still be alive. We're just going to start with Moses. Take a little bit longer. And Moses turns to God. And he prays. He has a conversation with God. And he says, please don't do that. Remember the promise you made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you're going to make a nation, you're going to bless all the other nations through that nation. And then this happens in Exodus chapter 32. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. You know, like how mind-blowing that sentence is? So the Lord changed his mind. The Lord changed his mind. Moses spoke to God, and God changed his mind. And God is unchanging in his character, in who he is, but he is responsive to us. James, the brother of Jesus, he said this. He said, if you draw near, come close to God, and God will come close to you. That you have the ability to draw near to, to God, and God is responsive to that. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, purify your hearts, and God will come close to you. Dallas Willard, the great philosopher, he said, God's response to our prayer is not a charade. It's not a charade. And sometimes God, God's response to us when we ask him for things is no, but sometimes it's yes. The most kind of famous unanswered prayer in the Bible is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's laying down and he's praying, knowing the cross was before him, and he said, please take this cup from me. And obviously the answer to that prayer was no. But that no to Jesus was yes to billions of other people because of the power of the cross and the resurrection. And so I don't know how that, all that works, but I do know that God is responsive to us, particularly in the realm of our relationship. 
as we develop our relationship. This has been happening a lot the last couple of weeks in our church. Uh, God has been responsive to us in different ways. And so we have a prayer team that prays before a gathering. Sometimes they'll get a, a, a word, a prophetic word to pray into. And um, a couple of weeks ago, there was one word, alignment. And Mel got up at the end to close the service and she, she got that word from the prayer team. And she was like, I think God wants to pray for alignment of people's backs. And so she just did a little prayer for people who needed healing in their back. And we got stories after that Sunday of like four people having their backs healed, like people that are in this room and can tell the story. And then last week, we had our Holy Spirit night, and um, same sort of thing happened. Alyssa came, and, and she had her kids, and she had to leave, and so she's like, I just got this sense about praying for someone with a fracture. And it's like, can you pray? And I was like, oh, I don't really want to. But I got up at the end, and no, like full well looking at all the people that I knew in the room, and I know no one's got a fracture. And I'm like, I uh, just... We got the sense maybe someone has a fracture. Pray for it. And straight away, someone put their hand up. And he had a, um, a fracture in his foot, I believe, that had been there for a couple of years. We prayed for him. And he got better. Checked in on him again uh, during that week. And it was still good, pain-free. And he's like, I think I'm healed. And then, at that night, we were praying as a team before the night started. And I just said, it was sort of an off-the-cuff statement. I said, I think the thing, the most important thing that God wants to do here tonight is not something that's going to happen on the stage up front or microphone or worship leader or whatever, but it's going to happen in the third row. I was just using the third row as an example that it's like it's going to happen out there. And then that night someone came in and sat on the third row and, um, and she uh, came from Blacktown with, a, with someone as part of our church. She brought her, she's a Hindu lady, never been to church before. She sat down, she was telling us, my one, the one thing on my bucket list was to go to a church. I just like have been intrigued by Jesus. And she said, but I, ho- I was hoping there would be a statue of Jesus in the church. And I was like, well, it's not really our vibe, but um, I understand. And then she came up afterwards and she said, um, I was hoping for the statue, but I closed my eyes when we prayed and I saw Jesus. And she said, I've never felt peace or power like that before. And so we prayed for her and gave her a Bible. And the Bible's missing in the third row because she's taken it and she's reading Mark. And all that to say that we didn't go out, like we haven't been going, oh man, so good if we could just pray for backs. Like let's, let's, let's try to make something happen. Let's ask God for healing of, of people's backs or fractures. Or let's pray that someone comes all the way from Blacktown and experiences Jesus for the first time. No, like it's, it's, we've been trying to develop a relational space. We've been trying to become a house of prayer. That's kind of the, the, the driving force for us, the thing that's, that we are leaning into as our formation as a community this year is that we want to become a house of, house of prayer, people that house the presence of God. And house of prayer is not just going and asking for things, but it's developing life with God. All of the stuff. It's the, it's the, it's the silence and the reading scripture and the worship that we're singing. Worship music is just, it's sung prayers. And it's, praying in tongues, and it's believing for prophetic words, and it's praying for healing, and it's going for a walk with God, and it's praying set prayers, it's praying the Lord's Prayer like we've been praying all through Lent in the mornings. It's all of it. It's developing a life of prayer, life with God. Prayer is the development of the relational space, and out of relationship, stuff happens, and there is deep mystery there because there's a lot of wills at work. Right? There's a lot of desires, a lot of things that we want and ask, and there's a lot of things God wants. There's a lot of things the enemy wants. And so I don't know how that all works. 
There is no formula, unfortunately. I wish there was. It would be so much easier, wouldn't it, if we could just punch in the right code and get what we wanted. But life doesn't work like that. And God doesn't work like that. Because he's a person. And we're people. (laughs) And he's in control and he's got power. And so do we a little bit. And there's some sort of interaction between all of that. But Rollheiser says, I love this. He says, there is simply just one rule to prayer. Show up regularly. There's one rule to prayer. Show up regularly. Ironically, that's the same rule to relationships, really, that we would show up regularly. Prayer is the development of the relational space between me and God, between you and God, between us and God. Prayer is deeply human. It is the soul's native language. But I love it how Corey Ten Boom puts it. She says, is, will, will, will prayer be the steering wheel of your life or will it be this, the spare wheel? Will it be where we run when everything breaks down and we've got nowhere else to turn? Or will it be the driving force of what we do? Will our life with God animate all that we do? And this year... Our hope is to get that right as a community. That prayer wouldn't be the spare tire in the back, but that prayer would be at the front. It would be central. It would be guiding us. That our life with God, both individually and communally, would be the driving force of what we do.